0: Our sermon this morning is from First Thessalonians chapter two. I'll just pick a verse from the series we have engaged in First Thessalonians, and in verse twelve, which we covered last week when we were studying the marks of a faithful ministry. I saw a rabbit trail there. I didn't want to chase it during the sermon because then it would be long and boring and detouring from the main point. But I want to chase that rabbit trail this morning. Since we are less in number, um, and it is verse 12, I'll read it to you. Paul is describing how, anecdotally, how he labored among the Thessalonians. We use that anecdotal portion in the letter to bring eight or nine points about the marks of Paul's ministry. And we said it is a marks of a faithful ministry. But then in verse 12 he says we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And that is the reading of God's word. Let us pray before we open that text. Father, we come before you again thanking you for the opportunity to worship you, thanking you for the opportunity to come in your presence and Read the scriptures, pray together, see one another, encourage one another, and remind ourselves of that day that is approaching. We pray that in your kindness you bless the reading and the exposition of your word, that Christ may be exalted, that your people may be edified. We also pray for our brethren who are camping, that they may enjoy their time together, that you give them traveling mercies, that they may arrive this afternoon safely home. We commit them to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How do we live? Does our life, or do our lives, reflect our condition? And The rabbit trail I want to change is that exhortation or encouragement or charging that Paul describes in verse 12. I, I did this personally with you. He says, Even as a father does with his children, that you may walk worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. There is a man I know, he's a, he's a brother in the Lord. Many of you in this congregation know him. He doesn't know that I'm talking about him. He's Dr. Louis Miller. We're friends from, from our teenage years. One of the smartest individuals I know, he graduated as a medical doctor, I don't know, 3.85 or 3.90 out of 4, and he passed the test, the tests to, be, to, to enter the programs in the U.S. to be a specialist without knowing English, and he passed the tests. I mean, the guy has a brilliant mind. But he's one of the most unassuming individuals you can talk to. If you see him, he would not say absolutely anything of the kind of mind he has. And this story came to me from his wife, and I think, and I hope I'm telling the truth. You know, there's a lot of pulpit pulpit stories that are exaggerations and inventions, and I hate those. I think I'm telling the truth on this one. When he was a young man, he was the son of a general army, or an army general. In the Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic police is repu- has a reputation for pulling people over just to collect bribes and get money out of them. So he's driving his car, and 17, 18-year-old kid, and a police officer stops him, pulls him over. They are looking for bribes. He doesn't pay them any bribe. They take him into custody. So when he arrives at the police station, he says, may I, may I make a phone call? Very humbly, very unassuming, not a word, and he grabs the phone. <laughs> Dad, I'm here at the police station, <laughs> please pass me the officer. And you can only imagine the face of that officer who pulled over this young kid who hadn't done anything. Basically, he was looking for money, and he had a, an army general on the other line. I mean, the poor guy wanted to die. That's the way the story came to me. He didn't make a scene. Louis was very unassuming, very calm. He would never pull that, that he was the son of a general, nothing. He would just let them take him to custody, whatever, I'll, I'll call that. But that story came to my mind as I was meditating on this on this rabbit trail I want to chase from this text. That Paul commanded or commanded the Thessalonians, charged them to walk worthy of, of God. And I just want to share with you a textual observation, four things, the charge, walk worthy of God, the motivation, he called you into his kingdom and glory, and then some practical implications. What is that? What is the walk worthy of God? And this may sound like the intro for a very moralistic and legalistic sermon. I'm not going there. To walk worthy of God is to not have to thee, not do this, not do that. I'm not going there. That's not the gospel. What is this? Well, if you observe the text first, I see there are three aspects of biblical instruction. If you want three aspects of discipleship, you're talking to someone, you're discipling someone personally or in a small group, or in any setting, or you're teaching publicly, as I am doing right now, there are three elements that that biblical instruction aimed at building disciples up must have. And Paul brings them here. He says, "We exhorted you," and that word "exhort" is to address the mind, to address the mind with a charge. It is sort of a sort of an appeal, sort of a hortatory instruction. When we're teaching, we just are. We're just passing information. When we're exhorting, we are also passing information. But we have a aim in view. We have a purpose. And the purpose is to change something. Or to move something out of the will or out of the emotions of a person. It is a call to action. And it could be a prohibition to stop doing something. Or it could be, it could be an encouragement to continue doing something. Remember, way back when, when I was a young man, this, this, this teacher in, in, in Bible school, Dr. Westcott, would always tell us, when you find an imperative in the Bible, remember that the imperative only means stop doing what you're doing. If it is a negative imperative, or if it is a positive imperative, keep doing what you're doing. And that's, that's pretty much an exhortation. It's a, it's a hortatory instruction informing the mind with a charge to change or persevere in something. And then Paul adds the second element of what biblical instruction or discipleship ought to have, which is exhortation, or rather encouraging. He says, we encourage you. The, the word encouraging and the word exhortation have something in common. It is coming alongside someone. It is not a teleremote thing. It was very cool the other day I was watching a person operating one of Komatsu's gigantic excavators from hundreds of miles away and and we are now pushing the teleremote operation. You have a dangerous area you send the excavator away, but don't put an operator there because it's dangerous. You can have a guy far away operating the machine pretty much the way the Air Force flies airplanes nowadays the same thing well. Exhortation and encouraging cannot be or doesn't have this idea of teleremote discipling. It is actually coming alongside. It is coming near the person. It, It has that element of a personal touch. And the emphasis with encouraging is that it is a soothing word. It is a word of consolation, of comfort. It has this element of emotional attachment. To encourage, you need sympathy. And sympathy is entering into the person's pain or into the person's situation. You somehow need to walk in their shoes to be able to sympathize with them. That text in in Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, Some of those who have been in ministry know what it is to go from a funeral to a wedding. And sometimes that happens the same day. You go to a funeral, you're there weeping with those who are weeping, and and once you're done at the funeral, you have to basically wipe your tears and go to the wedding and dance with those who are getting married. Paul says you do that. You rejoice with those who rejoice, you weep with those who weep. For encouraging, you need to enter in that place. Now, I like the element of the personal touch because the word in the original has that idea. It's to come alongside to comfort. And it brought me to memory the passage in 2 Corinthians 7 when Paul is describing when he was coming back from Macedonia and had been to Athens and it was really a hard ministry for him. And Paul says, I I was really depressed. Literally, he uses that word. I was depressed. To the point of even losing the hope of being alive. Really dark moment for Paul. And he is not afraid to share that with the Corinthians. But I love he says, And God, who comforts the depressed, comforted me with the coming of Titus. He didn't say, And God showed me an angel. He showed me a vision of heaven. He showed me some grandiose whatever. No. Titus came... And his presence, his face, comforted me and got me out of the depression. That's encouraging. This is face-to-face ministry. That's why, and, and I don't know how many people are watching over the internet. Maybe not too many. Or, or, or those who listen afterwards on sermon audio or whatever, they upload the sermons. There's an element that, the and I'm not by far, But even the best preachers of our day, the John MacArthur's of our day, the John Piper's of our day, Tim Keller, whomever's your favorite, Chandler, whatever, you name it. There's something that they cannot provide when you just follow online preaching and online ministries. And it is that face-to-face interaction. Why do we come to church? To come to Mass to hear Father Freddy or Father Edwin? By all means, no. Please, No. That's not the purpose of coming to listen to a sermon. You can do a lot better in the comfort of your home. It is the face-to-face that encourages one another. Even chit-chatting nonsense. But at least you're, a reminder. you're reminded of your brothers and sisters, of the gospel, of our fellowship, of our union in Christ. And I just use that as an encouragement to consider always gathering with one another, not neglecting or not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And of course, this encouraging thing has to bring the note of being sensible. You know, when you're encouraging, you you have to be mindful of what you're dealing with. You remember that proverb 2520, He who sings songs to the afflicted heart is like the one who pours vinegar in an open wound. Sometimes you don't have alcohol, you don't have anything, and you need just to disinfect a wound and you put vinegar. But you know what happens. You have to hold your tongue not to utter certain words that we shouldn't be uttering. Because it stinks. Well, sometimes you find a person who's depressed, who's downcast, who's going through difficulties, and you come with a lofty description of God's sovereignty and of whatever... All you're doing is just pouring vinegar in their wounds. The point is, no, encourage them. Get, get in their shoes, be sensible, sympathize, come alongside. And sometimes if all you can do is just keep quiet and provide your face as an encouragement, do that. You don't need to talk. Sometimes some of us have the wrong sense that whenever a person brings a problem, we have to say something. Sometimes you see, you know, you know can, can we pray? Because I don't have anything to say. Let's pray. Or just be there and sit quietly, loving that person. That's the point Paul is bringing. And finally, he says, charging you. That word to charge. Fascinating. In the original, it's the same root of a martyr. And a martyr is a witness. Even classical Greek used that word to imply testifying in a solemn cord even testifying before the divine. Paul says, sometimes I had to come with a solemn call and a solemn charge to witness to you that your path is wrong, that you're heading the wrong direction, and I even have to warn you before God. Don't go that way. You're going to hit a wall. You're actually raising your hands against the living God. And our ministry to one another must include that. It is hard. It is hard to admonish. It is hard to rebuke. It is hard to point to sin. And let me give this warning. If you find it easy, you have a problem. Some people just have a quick mouth to be rebuking everybody and everything and everyone. Check yourself. You're not looking at yourself in the mirror well. Now, sometimes you have to do it. You have to admonish. You have to rebuke. You have to say, that's wrong. And you have to bring the weightiness of eternity and of the word of God and of judgment to bring that person to their senses and literally point them to the consequences of disobedience. I, I was sharing with Kirk, that many people have this sense of universalism. Somebody dies, he or she is in a better place. I don't know that. I don't know if the person is in a better place. I've been called to funerals of people I don't even know. The friend of a friend said that you can help me with the funeral of my mom. There you show up. Hello. Are you the priest? Yeah. They don't don't know the difference. I'm not going to explain. Yeah, I'm the priest. Um, And when do we start? And you start. Open the Bible. Preach the gospel to those who are living. Express a word of condolences to those who are grieving. But I'm not the one who says, and our sister here, I don't know her. How can she be my sister? I have no idea who she is. She is with the Lord. I don't know that. Now, if she came to the Lord while alive, if she closed with Christ, to use the old Puritan expression, yes, she is or he is with the Lord. But if not, I'm not going to say that. And when people ask me, where's my mom? I always say, if she came to the Lord, she is with him. If he came to Christ, like the thief on the cross, even on the last breath of his life, he is with Christ. That's the only comfort I can offer you. So this charging has that element of pointing to the reality of judgment and death and the consequences of disobedience. Now, all of these I know could be Paul's didactic redundancy. Paul is saying the same thing with different words as a Jewish rabbi. Yes, he's saying the same thing, but he's bringing different emphases on what he is talking. This is a big component of making disciples. Those elements have to be there in our interactions with one another. If I may add to those who preach and teach, that has to be present when we preach or teach. We have to inform the mind. We have to encourage God's people. We have to warn them. We have to admonish. Even as Paul wrote to Timothy, "Preach the word in 2 Timothy 4.2, be ready in season and out of season. Exhort, reprove, rebuke with all patience and suffering. Some people are ready to exhort, rebuke, and admonish. Yes, but do it with patience. <laughs> they are God's sheep and you are serving them. Now, how do we illustrate the difference between the three? I think I've done this before, but, but let me repeat it. You, you've been driving and you find those fasten your seat belts on the road, right? Well, when the fasten your seat belt road sign comes, you've probably seen the three versions of admonishing, rebuking, or encouraging with those signs. Because one of them may read, Fasten your seatbelt because the seatbelt saves lives. That's an exhortation. It's telling you what to do and it's informing your mind. If you start rolling over or you have an accident, that thing may restrain you and literally sa- save your life. Or sometimes it may come in an encouraging format. Your loved ones are waiting for you and they need you alive. Fasten your seatbelt. Sometimes it comes in an admonition or charging. Click it or ticket. it. <laughs> you didn't get it, then there's a guy who's ready to get, get you a $75, $100 bucks bill for not doing it. That's pretty much the way it works. When we disciple and instruct and encourage and charge one another, that's what we do. Secondly, and the next points are going to be more brief than the first one. Well, what is the charge? What is Paul's point? that you may walk worthy of God. Now, when we read those things, we always have to deal with the tensions. In scripture, in theology, there's no escape from the tensions. I'll share a secret with you. Don't run with it, because it is a dangerous secret I'm going to share with you. Don't run with it too far. Just use it as a caveat. I'll tell you what is one of the dangers of systematic theology. (gasps) Yes, one of the dangers of systematic theology. That as you try to fit scripture into your system, you let go of the tension and you explain the tension to fit your system. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What do you want me to do with that? Well, the world is not the world. Huh. No? No. The world is the world of the elect. Really. Why didn't John write it that way? Because the world is the world. Oh, but God is sovereign. Yes. But he calls all men to repent. Yes. And Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Yes. And he said, and you don't want to come to me that you may have life. Yes. Deal with it. But my theology and my confession cannot explain it. That's not my problem. And I'm not going to bother about it. I'll just tell you, deal with it. Now, tensions. Here's a biblical tension. Walk worthy of God. But salvation is by grace, yes. Alone, yes. By faith alone, yes. In Jesus alone, yes. To the glory of God alone, yes. But walk worthy of God. What do you want me to tell you? No, that doesn't mean walk worthy of God because it is a legalistic, moralistic commandment and those imperatives cannot be in the Bible because they take away from the gospel. Says who? Because Paul wrote it and he didn't have any problems writing it or explaining it. Deal with attention. It is there. Walk worthy of God. Why? Because our faith which comes to us by grace given by God in which the only thing we brought to the equation was sin is made manifest and visible through our lives. James 2 is as much the word of God as Romans 5. You say you have faith? Great, the demons also have faith and tremble. Show me your faith through your works. Show me your faith through your walk. That's moralism. No, that's in the Bible. Our walk, in fact, is the only thing we have to judge faith. Jesus says, you shall know the tree by what? Its fruit. That's all we have. Now, be careful. Why? Because if you would have judged Samson when he was in fornication with Delilah, you would have concluded Samson is not a believer. Then you have to take away or rip a verse from Hebrews 11. If you would have judged Lot when he was in an incestuous relationship with his two daughters because he was drunk, Then you would have said, Lot cannot be a believer. But then you have a problem with 2 Peter 3 that calls him a righteous man who afflicted his righteous soul daily. So be careful because you may be running into a true believer who's going through a bad situation, backslidden situation, on his way to repentance under the discipline of God. We don't know the heart. Now, in the meantime, What I see is not too comforting to me about your walk. Because your walk is not reflecting your faith. That doesn't mean you don't have it. It only says, I don't see it. This is not to earn divine favor either. Walk worthy of God. That means you have to walk in such a way that God be pleased. With you. Beloved, there is absolutely nothing, if you are in Christ, nothing that you can do to add a microscope or a portion of a photon of wrath to you. Because if you could add a little bit of wrath of God to you, then when Jesus said, to teleste, it is finished, he lied. Choose what you want to believe. You either believe, as a believer, I can lose my salvation, or I can somehow make God angry at me, or I believe that Jesus said it is finished. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. That's the gospel. We cannot change that either. Remember the prodigal God. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. No, no, it is the parable of the prodigal God who forgave freely, openly, with a wide hide. He ran to the son. He did not even let him talk. He had his speech prepared. His religious speech prepared. Make me like one of your laborers. I have sinned. Here's my penance. The father didn't even let him talk. And he was already kissing, embracing, and forgiving him. That's the gospel. Walking worthy of God is not walking to earn merit. You cannot, I cannot do that. To walk worthy of God is to walk according to what he has already decreed about us. That is to work worthy of God. Work according to what God says you are. What does he say? That he loved you before the foundation of the world. That you love God because he loved you first. Walk as one who has been loved before you were born, before your parents met, before your great-great-great-grandparents even came to know each other, before the foundation of the world, you have been loved by God. Because that's the way Scripture presents it. Walk in that light. Walk in the light of one whom God sent His only beloved Son to pay the penalty of his, her sins. Walk in that light. Walk as a forgiven person. Some of us, whether because of a psychological or psychiatric disrupture, and when I talk about me, it could be anything, believe me, my software is really broken, or because of our religious upbringing, we were brought up, Roman Catholics, having to confess and do penance and do all kinds of things. We, we tend to repeat and confess and repeat the same. Some, I've caught myself telling the Lord, please forgive me for telling you again to forgive me for that. Now, if you do not have those mental problems I have, confessing the sins of what I did to a cat when I was seven years old, if you don't have those problems, awesome! If you have them, walk as one who has been forgiven of every sin. That's the gospel. Cannot change that. God has declared us righteous justified what is justified just as if i'd never sinned and always obeyed we stop at just as if i'd never sinned big deal no no and always obeyed because all of the credit of jesus righteousness comes to my account have you guys seen that meme that's running around your bank account has 12 million five hundred sixty seven thousand it's just a joke but it's Around that, People answer the phone, hear the phone, and, and somebody tells you they have $12 million in their bank account. Sometimes you wonder, wow, why did they tell me that my bank account had that? Knowing me, probably nothing would have changed. The first thing is I would not believe it. But, imagine it were true. Well, it is true. <laughs> Our bank account has the obedience of Christ. Our bank account has that Jesus said, the Father loves me. Because I always do what is pleasing to Him. Please, put it on John's account, on Osborne's account, on Jeff's account, on Bob's account. Put it on their account. And you can say, well, God loves me. Because I too do whatever pleases Him. Because Jesus did it in my place. That is true. We are united Christ. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. We have perfect righteousness. And then, of course, thirdly, what's the motivation? To walk worthy of our calling. The text says, he called you into his own kingdom in glory. I love it because we are not just called generically into a kingdom. Paul, please read it. He called you into his own kingdom. It is to God's realm, to God's sphere of authority and dominion, to where he dwells and all of his richness are that you have been called in Christ. Therefore, Walk worthy of that calling. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to merit it. Just walk according to it. And we have not been called as observers. Do you have this horrendous picture of heaven that I have? Again, my upbringing. My watching or seeing too many pictures and paintings of heaven from the Middle Ages. This white robe. Two big wings. And a harp watching, flying from cloud to cloud. Isn't that kind of boring? <laughs> I mean, is that heaven for you? I, or, or, or an endless church service. Can you imagine an endless church service? Oh my word. Singing and. No. We're going to be partaking. Tasting. I don't know how. Don't ask me because I cannot, I will not speculate, I have no idea. But it is something that will be sensed, perceived, enjoyed, lived. You've been to the Grand Canyon, you've seen that thing from a helicopter or from one of those miradors, and and whatever goes through your mind when you see it, whatever you feel, or your favorite music... Even if it is a horrendous rap, I don't care what it is that you like, but that goosebumps, those things you get that you feel. Extrapolate that to levels I cannot even imagine. And that's how we will taste and see that the Lord is good. And how blessed is the person who puts his trust in him. It's not gonna be observers, we're gonna be partakers. We're going to be sharing in His glory. In biblical language, He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What will that be? Have you seen those Facebook things? By the way, don't fill them out. They're just trying to pull information about you. Stay away from those things, honestly. Who cares what your middle name, city, whatever letter starts with? They're just trying to pull info from you. Don't fill those things. But some of them are kind of like... Who would you like to see in heaven? Of course, there's somebody. Who says, Jesus. Well, that person is right. Who else? I'm not interested in seeing my grandfather, my grandmother. Well, it's awesome if I see them. But no, you want to see God. What will that sight be? I was reading this week about Peter when Peter when Jesus transfigured before them, and Peter says, "Let's make three tents: one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses." Peter, but you have children. Who cares? You have a wife. Who cares? You have a mother-in-law. Much better. Three tents here. I don't want to go back down. That's heaven. We have been called into his marvelous light. Delivered from the kingdom of darkness into God's beloved kingdom. Raised us from the dead into God's marvelous life with Christ Jesus. Adopted as children of God. To be heirs of God Fellow heirs with Christ. One thing is to give some money to Samaritan's Purse. It's coming, Samaritan's Purse, and oh, my wife reminded me, remember, you have to give me $100 for the Samaritan. Yes, yes, I remember. $100, oh, how generous, $100. $100 generous, you spend that in a restaurant, please. That's nothing, you spend that in tolls. That's not the way God gave to us. (laughs) He <laughs> come, take the house, it's yours. And Jesus says, yes, it's mine, but it's yours too. All my toys, all what I have, it's yours. You're a fellow heir with me. That's an unbelievable thought. And Paul is saying, you have been called to that. Walk worthy of that. Were you saying Louis Miller was earning merit to become his dad's son? No, he was his dad's son already. He just walked unassumingly, knowing that the police officer could not touch him because all he needed to do was, let me make a phone call, sir, please. And that was it. That's exactly Paul's point. Here's a summary of the motivation from Jesus, from Jesus' lips, as recorded in Luke 12 32 and 33. Jesus says, Fear not. To his disciples, we, we can get there. We can, we can get in that bandwagon. Fear not little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure. To give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money backs. That do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens. That does not fall. Where no thief approaches. And no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there will be your heart also." That's the meaning of it. It has been the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Walk worthy of it. How does that translate in practical terms? Joy. But I'm not joyful. I'm sad. I'm battling depression. I'm battling financial difficulties, I'm battling marriage difficulties, I'm battling cancer, I'm battling COVID, I'm battling issues, I'm battling legal problems. What do you mean joy? It's not giddiness. It's not music-driven joy. It's not that. Why do you think people dance to merengue? There's even a guy like me who doesn't like to dance. When you hear a good merengue, your feet move alone. There's hormones and things in your body that move and make you happy. It's not that. It's not what we're talking about. You can get that in church, by the way. Good band, good orchestra, good music will get you excited and you think that it's it's just your endorphins working. Which is fine, by the way. It's fine. God uses music for worship. Don't confuse it. No, no. It is this Deeply seated state that transcends the darkest moments of the mind, in which you say, Yes, but I'm a child of God. And would you even tell God, even if you slay me, even if you kill me, I will still hope in you? And you tell God, This is really bad. But I will not trade you for anything out there. Do according to your will. Do you know that? That's how it looks. Walking worthy of your hope of glory. Hope. I love Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk 3 is so graphic. He says, I heard... God's judgment the Assyrians are coming to destroy Samaria I heard and my heart pounded that adrenaline jolt my lips quivered at the sound decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled and yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us there's no giddiness here This is real life. This is how it is Monday through Friday. I'm not going to come tell you, well, it's joy, victorious, and the Lord. I'm not going to tell you what that is because it's not proper for a pulpit, but you can ask me outside, and I'll tell you what that is. Those clowns and comical, theatrical individuals asking for money and selling what is not. This is the real life, what Habakkuk, the man of God, was feeling when God told him, this is what's going to happen to you and to your people. And then he writes, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. That's how it looks like. It's the motivation to, to excel at whatever you do. What is it that you do? You're a doctor, a lawyer, a secretary, a clerk, uh, handle construction equipment like John, electrician, whatever you are, what, are you, what, what do you do? Be the best. Not because Joel Osteen says, be the best you can be. No. <laughs> excel at what you do because of the hope that awaits you. What a motivation to excel. For God's glory. I want to work worthy of the inheritance God has given to me. And I'm not doing this to get more money If it comes, welcome. I'm not doing this to get a promotion. If it gets, welcome. I'm doing this because I love my king and I want to walk worthy of my dad. That's the way it works. Of course, humility, which none of us have. I always thought I was humble until I realized, oh my, I'm proud of being humble. (laughs) But true humility of mind... Being a base of mine, knowing where we were rescued from. Whenever the itch which I get, I guess like all of you, the itch of not getting what I deserve. I should be promoted. Why was such and such promoted? Why does such and such make more money than me? When that thing comes to me, I go back to when I had holes in my shoe sold. I go back when I didn't have two pennies to rub together and I have to walk from university to my house because I didn't even have for the bus fare. And then tell myself, who do you think you are? Do you forget where you come from? Don't stop there. Keep moving. Do you know where you're going to? Do you know what awaits you? Do you know the glories that await those who are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ? And that immediately deflates any pride and brings you to the foot of the cross. Makes you meek too. Some of us have an incendiary soul by nature. I was walking yesterday into a restaurant and I'm just walking in peace. I have my vaccination, my booster. You have to wear a mask. And the Old communists came at me saying, yeah, hypocrites, I'm going to put the mask on. Here's the mask. And I sat on the table, and here's the mask off. Hi- that was my attitude. And I said, really? Is that the way a child of God walks? Is that the meekness of somebody who will inherit the earth? What do you want? you want me to wear one mask? No, you need two for extra protection. Fine. Get me the second one and I'll put the extra protection. What else do you want me to wear? Who cares? The meek shall inherit the earth. My citizens, is a, my rights as a citizen of the United States, who cares? We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, where we are waiting for the appearance of our Lord and Savior who will transform this body of our humiliation into a glorious body according to His own that's walk worthy of God. Why? Because it has been the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is doing the works of God. And Jesus was asked, tell us what are the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. May God help you And bless you to walk worthy of God. According to his kingdom and the glory he has called you. Amen. Amen. Father, bless your word. Use it to the profit of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.